All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, great guest for you guys now, Igor Volsky. He is executive director of Guns Down America, also the author of Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. Igor, welcome. Thank you for having me. No problem. So uh, a lot of conservatives say, oh, these uh, libs, they wanna get rid of all the guns. Uh, you're the one coming closest to that. <laughs> so that's uh, usually not the case, yeah. uh, but in your case, kind of. So what do you wanna do with the guns? Well, I think we need fewer guns. I think the only way to really save lives is to set a long-term goal of building a future with fewer guns. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I talk about how we can get there within the confines of the Second Amendment. But you know, what really, I think, gets at me in this entire conversation, even some of my colleagues in, in gun control world, is we're always so afraid to say what it is we really want. And I think that this strategy that we've had for the last 20 years of trying to meet folks in the middle and trying to wrap everything in like, this is just a small little reform has really failed because there's nobody on the other side to build any kind of coalitions with. And so I argue we need to be bold and we need to ask for what we need, which is a world where we don't have more guns than people. Okay, so uh, I like that kind of talk. <laughs> uh, so that safe centrist talk drives me nuts. Uh, I, I might even go further than you. I think the Second Amendment gives uh, you a lot of rights if you're in a well-regulated militia. If That's you're the not, history of it. That's that, the history of it. Yeah. And it's also the plain language of it. Yeah. So uh, Scalia hates plain language, or he did when he was <laughs> alive uh, reading of it. He hates original intent. He hates all the things that he claimed that he was in favor of, all the right wing do. If you cared about the actual text of the Constitution, the only way you're allowed to have guns is if you're a part of a well-regulated militia, and you're not, so just live with it. But unfortunately, we have very scared Democrats in this country. They've been scared for 40 years, and so they never fight back. So now let's talk about in this particular case, what are the actual policy proposals that you want them to fight for? So I, in the book, I lay out a Second Amendment compact, but I really think of it in three different buckets. So the first thing you gotta do is crack down on the gun industry. Right now, the federal cap is machine guns. So as long as you're not producing machine guns for the civilian market, you could do whatever you want. And what we've seen over the last you know, decade, and even the last 20 years, is the gun industry had a real problem. How do we market guns to a populace that already has a lot of guns? Well, we know, they said, we'll make them more dangerous. And so that's where you got assault weapons, that's where you got militarized handguns that use the high capacity magazines, these semi-automatic pistols that use larger rounds that are coming at you faster, that are killing folks who would have survived past generations of handguns. That's a major problem. It's because of a federal loophole, we have to close it, we have to regulate firearms. Yeah, hold on, let me just stop there for a second. So. Uh for folks who don't know, what's the difference between a machine gun and an assault rifle? The main difference is that with a machine gun, when you pull a trigger, you get multiple rounds at once. With a semi-automatic weapon, at each pull, it fires out a bullet, that's really the difference. But when you attach to a assault weapon a large magazine, that means you could shoot a lot of bullets pretty efficiently and kill as many people as efficiently as possible. And as we know, that's really what mass shooters do in, in public mass shootings. And, and the shooting in Vegas was an unfortunately example of bump stocks yeah. where you could actually then convert that's assault right. rifles into in essence machine guns. That's right. And there's you know there are bump stocks that are now banned, there but there are also all kinds of devices that the industry produces in order to constantly solve this problem. 
it's, it's market share and it's customers have so many products. How do you get them to buy more? You continually try to innovate to make them deadlier. And we allow for that to happen under federal law. That should not be the case. So that's kind of the, the first bucket, okay? The second- can, can, I'm yep. sorry, before no, you go ahead. on to the second bucket, I got more questions about that. So do you think that they're meeting a demand of like a bunch of gung-ho guys who are like, oh, I want the bigger bullet and yeah. I want it to fire faster, etc. Or is there some element of, well, they wanna sell to criminals too. And criminals need more deadly weapons. And and the more that the criminals have weapons, number one, they just sold a gun, what do they care? And and number two is, uh, or an assault rifle, number two is it makes everyone else scared and need to defend themselves but by, by buying even more weapons. Well, look, certainly uh, maybe it's a combination of both. I mean, what you have is not only these more dangerous weapons, but you also have pretty irresponsible marketing tactics that are going on. You know, you may remember a couple of years ago, Bushmaster used to sell assault weapons under the label, your man card reissued. And when you got your assault weapon, it came with an actual man card that I guess you could put in, pull in your wallet and then show all of your friends that you were a real man. I mean, this is a real <laughs> you know, marketing technique to young men um, and to continue to make this link between masculinity and gun ownership. And that of course also enlists that audience in the continued fight against gun control because it, it, taught, it kind of lays into the sense of who you are as an individual. It's not just about a gun, it's about your self-worth, it's about your self-identity. And that's really part of their success over all these years. Yeah. They've been able to tap into that. Uh, if you need a physical man card in your wallet <laughs> to prove your masculinity, I don't think problems. that solved it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that didn't solve it. Okay, so um, now, and in terms of the magazines, is there limits on how much, uh, how many bullets a magazine can hold at this point? There are there are various kinds. Some are are higher than others. So you can, when you go into a store or you go online, you really have a lot of choices. Okay, got you. All right, now second policy. So second bucket really deals with ensuring that gun owners can prove to their neighbors, can prove to their communities that could handle a gun responsibly. And what I mean by that is you get a license, you register your firearm, and you get insurance. And those are the kinds of reforms we've seen in some states in America. Nine states have some degree of firearm licensing. But most importantly, overseas, where they've been much more successful in reducing gun deaths by adopting this, these kinds of reforms. And what they really focus on is raising the standard for gun ownership. Because, you know, folks say this a lot. The folks who are running for president say this a lot, or politicians say this a lot, that all we really want to do is take guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And we in 2019 should know what that means, right? I don't wanna take your guns. I wanna take guns from those other dangerous people. Mm -hmm. That's a real problem uh, morally, but it's also a real problem because it doesn't work. In every other nation, nobody divided the, their populace between responsible gun owners and dangerous people. What they did is they changed the entire environment in which guns are produced by regulating that piece of it, regulating the supply, and in which guns are purchased. And by doing that for everybody, the so-called responsible people and the so-called dangerous people, they made everybody safer. So that's really a framing point that I think all of us in talking about this issue need to need to, need to get into. Look, uh, 
part of the problem is how the hell would you know if they're a responsible exactly. gun owner or going to be a responsible gun owner? So I guarantee you, and I'll lowball it here and say at least 80% of the mass shooters, if you had taken their guns ahead of time, the NRA would have jumped down your throat, go, what are you doing? Look at these liberals, mm -hmm. they're seizing people's guns. This is a good student at a school, responsible gun owner, he doesn't have a felony on his record. Of course he should be able to mm -hmm. buy these weapons. And it's not just the mass shooters. I mean, this kind of division of good guy, bad guy, or just taking the guns of dangerous people doesn't make sense in a country where two thirds of gun deaths are suicides. Yes, that and and of course, uh, less guns equals less suicides. Mm -hmm. We have an enormous rate of suicides by gun in this country, far outpacing all other countries. On the idea of insurance, etc. So yeah. cars have insurance, uh, but guns don't have insurance. That makes no sense. And licensing, like I need a license to drive a vehicle, but I don't need a license to fire bullets that murder people. And so what is the response that they have? I know that they say, oh, they're gonna do a registry and snatch your guns. <laughs> but to be fair, when we did insurance and licensing for cars, I remember when the government came and took them all. <laughs> there, that's why Especially nobody has cars. LA, people are walking all over the place. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, on that uh, registration piece, and they say that a lot, right? It's just the beginning of mass confiscation. We've been registering machine guns in this country for decades. They're not outlawed, they're just incredibly well regulated. We have a registry, we know that there's over 600,000 machine guns in civilian hands. But because, Jesus. right, but because they're well regulated, when was the last time you heard of anybody using a machine gun to commit any kind of murder? You know, I looked actually at FBI statistics to see if we could tell they don't even have a category for machine guns because it's so rare. But, the, you know, but on the licensing point, I'll tell you, and in this book, I talk about going out west and shooting guns at this great big gun range. And I, after this two day really intense exercise, was actually able to find common ground with some of the folks who ran that facility who said, yes, if you're gonna have a gun, then you better go to a police station, get fingerprinted, pass a written test, pass a field test, go through a much more comprehensive background check than what we have today. Uh, wait a period of time and then get a gun. That's kind of the system that they have in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts, as we know, have some of the lowest rates of gun deaths in America. Igor, it, look, I, I know a decent amount about this issue because we cover it, yeah. unfortunately, almost every day on the show because of all the mass shootings. But I did not know that about machine guns, that there were 600,000 machine, gun, uh, uh, machine guns in the country. And you're right, we never have any machine we gun deaths. We never do. You know why? Because sometimes regulation works. Yes. So that's a great point. Uh, but I, we're gonna run out of time, so I wanna make sure we get to your third bucket. So the third bucket really deals with urban gun violence, right? Because what we know about ur urban gun violence is that it is really at the, comes at the hands of a small group of actors in the city. They're responsible for most of the gun death. And so there have been all kinds of successful programs here in California, elsewhere, that work with folks on the ground as crime, as crime and violence interrupters to change the behavior of those at-risk individuals who are committing most of the gun crime and those programs have been successful in reducing gun deaths. And so I call in the book for really funding those programs on the federal level in a real way so that you could scale them, so that they could survive administration changes on, on the city level. And so we could have you know real gun violence reduction. 
Okay, uh, everybody pick up the book, uh, it's called Guns Down because you're gonna learn a lot from it. And by the way, Igor's already uh, had a number of successes in people like FedEx, companies like FedEx, not working with the NRA anymore because of the activism that he did. And you're look, uh, here's another stat I didn't know, how many people die every day in America from gun deaths? Every day, that's, you know, I, I thought a, a lot, 10, yeah. 20, maybe 30. No, 96 people every single day in America die from guns. It's actually 100 now, by the it's way. When I was writing this in 96, now the estimate is 100. Unbelievable. We have got to take action right now. You are, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so really much. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yep. We'll be right back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, look at the post game. We did this uh, great thing in uh, Iowa where we asked the people who attended the rally to write in their stories about why they want change. Uh, some of those stories are fantastic. We're gonna have it in the post game for you guys. tyt.com slash trial to become a member and get the post game. If you want a month free, actually, you can go to aspiration.com slash tyt, sign up for Aspiration, and you'll get a month of uh, Young Turks for free as well. Let me go to my next guest. Uh, joining me now is John Perkins. Uh, he is the author of The Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and now The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Uh, that came out actually in 2016. Uh, John, great to have you on the show. Uh, as we talked about last time you were on Aggressive Progressive, I read the original uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and so did a lot of people, because it spent 73 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I'm fascinated uh, by uh, what's in the new book. But for the folks who don't know about the, the original book, I wanna go back and tell that story a little bit to catch them up. So. Uh, what was your job when you were interacting with other countries in the world, uh, and and what did it lead you to realize about how the United States and and neoliberal organizations conduct policy throughout the world? Well, uh, thanks, Jake. My my job, the job of the economic hitman, is basically to identify countries with resources our corporations covet like oil, for example, and then arrange huge loans to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money doesn't actually go to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in the country, things like power plants and industrial parks and parks and highways and ports and so forth. And in the end, the country really suffers for this because money that was supposed to pay for education, healthcare, and other social services goes to pay off the interest on the loans. In the end, the loans aren't paid off at all. Uh, and so we go back, usually under the guise of the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and say we'll restructure the loans, but that requires some conditionalities that the country has to privatize many of its public sector businesses, its utilities, its water and sewage systems, sell them to our investors cheap, uh, or nationalize some of its resources, or vote with us on the next United Nations vote against Cuba or some such thing, or allow us to build military bases on your soil. So there's really this, this incredible hit, this, this payoff. And I have to say that in the cases where we fail, which isn't too often, but I did fail with a couple of presidents, um, the people we call jackals step in. And these are CIA authorized uh, hit people. They're, they're the real kind of hit people, you know? And uh, they'll either throw, overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. That happened to two of my clients, the democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and uh, uh, the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos. 
And as to what I learned from all this, I learned, for example, that I think the United States has made a huge mistake to do this. At the end of the, at the Cold War, at the, when, when Russia, when the Soviet Union ceased to exist in 1991, we had an incredible opportunity to show the world the benefits of capitalism and democracy. But instead, we, we did things like what I just described. We set out to really, really um, exploit resources in many of these other countries. And so today we're finding that China is making huge inroads into these countries because it, it, require, it, it, it developed a lot of resentment on the part of the people in these countries. So John, um, what was your literal job at the time when you found out? Because you obviously turned on them, you wrote this book to let people know uh, what's happening. Uh, but what was the company you were working for and, and uh, what was the reason that you were even talking to those heads of state within that context? Yeah, so I worked for a company called Charles T. Maine, which has since been bought out and changed its name. I was a chief economist. I had a staff of highly skilled economists, financial analysts, sociologists working for me. So that was my cover basically. And what would happen is the World Bank or the, the US State Department or the Treasury Department or USAID would hire my company, not me personally, but they would, they would have a contract with my company to go to one of these countries and come up with a plan as to how the country could best use, let's say a billion dollars or, or more that, that, they, that the World Bank was prepared to loan to this country. And then it was my job to, to look at what, what ways we could best serve uh, American interest in those countries and convinced the president or the finance minister, whoever, uh, that it was to his benefit to make this happen. And and actually, you know, what happened was a few wealthy people really got more wealthy in those countries. They did very well because they owned the industries uh, that were supported by these infrastructure projects. But the majority of the people really suffered. And so in a way, so, sorry, John. So, uh, what I was going to ask is, um, do you think that the folks that worked at the World Bank, IMF, etc., had bad intent, or do they get uh, caught up in this game and genuinely believe that they're trying to help the people of those countries, etc.? And and who does have bad intent? I mean, is it just a core group of people, and and how does that process work? Well, I have to say that there's a lot of really good people, conscientious people, people with consciences working for the World Bank and those organizations. And, and I'll have to say that for the first years I was in that job, I thought I was doing the right thing because business school teaches us and the World Bank promotes the idea that if you want to help a poor country, invest billions of dollars into infrastructure. And in fact, all the economic models show that that happens. Uh, when, when you invest that money, the, the economy, the GDP of the country increases. Uh, and so it looks very good. But what those statistics don't show is that they're highly skewed in favor of the very wealthy people. So if you have a country where there's a few wealthy families and they're doing very, very well because you, they're able to use this infrastructure uh, and, and everybody else is doing poorly, it'll still look good. You know, right now we know that three individuals have as much wealth in the United States as half the US population. If those three people are doing really well, and that other half of the population is staying equal or maybe even declining a little bit, the st statistics can still show that they're doing well. 
And so I began to see this. And I think I was in a unique position because I'd been in the Peace Corps before this in Ecuador for three years. And I, I saw the other side and I speak Spanish so I could talk to people. So I really began to see how, how wrong the system is. An awful lot of people get stuck in the system. They continue to think that they're doing the right thing. Now, people at the very top have to understand what's going on. And certainly some of the people in the corporations do. But for the most part, it's a, it's a very uh, subversive uh, system where it's, it's so easy uh, to convince ourselves that we're doing a good job by making these loans, which are really very detrimental to the majority of people in these countries. Well, there's a good example of that uh, here in America. So our GDP has gone up over the last 30 years. But a new economic report came out recently showing that the top 1% their wealth went up by $21 trillion in those 30 years. But the bottom 50%, their wealth went down by $900 billion. So overall, you say, hey, we added $20 trillion to the economy. But what it doesn't tell you is actually half the country suffered and went backwards, and only the top 1% gained. So, uh, so it's not just Latin American countries that this happens in or developing countries. But I, I wanna get back to the silver or lead and, and who knows that. So that's the old Pablo Escobar thing. Look, I can give you a good amount of money or I can call in the jackals. And that's what you exposed in the book. Um, so somebody's gotta know about the jackals cuz somebody's sending them in. And my sense of having not just read your book but others was that in the old day there was this basically rich boys club. and. They all went to Harvard and Yale, they did skull and bones. So it was real back in the day, right? To getting tapped on the shoulder, etc. And half of them would go work at oil companies and banks and half of them would go work at the CIA. And it was a, a small clique and a couple of guys knew about it. One, is that a fair assessment of the past before we go to how it is today? Yes, I think it, it is and you know, a, a good example is in 2009, uh, Basically, the United States, the CIA, overthrew the president of Honduras, uh, President Zelaya. Now there was local movement too, but it, but it was kind of a classic CIA operation, and it was done because Zelaya had threatened or was actually increasing the minimum wage by sixty percent, and also instituting land reform, which was very detrimental to Dole and Chiquita and many other U.S. companies, and so. <clears throat> We, you know, they wanted to get rid of him. Economic hitmen went in, they were unsuccessful, so he was overthrown. But in the process, the American press and people in high places and corporations could justify all this because Zelai was accused of being a socialist, of siding with Castro, on and on and on. In fact, none of that was really true. I mean, he, he, he was willing to talk to Castro as most Latin American leaders are. Uh, but he was not a socialist in, in the strictest terms of words. He was certainly not a communist. Uh, he was trying to do a good job for his people. But in the process, our big corporations were suffering. And so the decision was made to overthrow him. Many of the people involved in overthrowing him went in believing that he was a socialist or that he was bad for the country, that he was a dictator. In fact, after he was overthrown, the country since then, Honduras, has had many terrible, brutal dictators. And it's now considered to be one of the most dangerous countries in the world outside of actual war zones. So John, this gets us to the new confessions of an economic hitman. So you know, if you read stories about Alan Dulles and how he ran the CIA, you know, his brother became Secretary of State, but they both ran companies that directly benefited 
from the CIA doing basically coups against some of these leaders. And if they didn't directly benefit their clients at the bank that they served, etc. Or people they knew, their friends, their colleagues, their immediate circle benefited from overthrowing those governments and doing exactly what you lay out. So that's a really clear line and it's very easy to see. These days, it's not quite that way. It's not the old club like they had back in the day. Skull and bones doesn't really mean what it used to back in the day. So how does it work today and why are they still doing it? Why doesn't the government look out for the American people instead of American corporations? Well, I'm not sure the government is looking out for the American people. They're still looking out big time for, for US corporations. Uh, yeah, I know, I'm saying why. In the old days, it's because Alan Dulles and his buddies ran the corporation. So it was super easy to understand, right? But now, why is it still the same way? Well, it, I th a lot of it goes back to the, the idea that was really promoted in 1976 by Milton Friedman, an economist from the Chicago School who won the Nobel Prize. And one of the most important and insidious things that he maintained was that the only responsibility of, of business is to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And the, the job of the US government was to make sure that businesses had the opportunity to do that. And so we've been working under that assumption for a very long time. So every major corporate executive basically believes that he is supposed to, he has to in fact, do whatever he can to maximize his profits, including uh, ripping off other countries, uh, destroying the resources upon which his business depends, uh, corrupting. Uh, officials. In the United States, we corrupt officials legally through the campaign process and through offering uh, people in high places very lucrative consulting and uh, lobbying jobs once they get out of those high places. So there's this whole system in place that revolves around maximizing profits and stealing resources, basically doing whatever you have to to get resources cheap, as cheap as, as cheap as you can from whatever country. And today, this is complicated by the rise of the Chinese. So today we have two superpowers once again, as we did during the Cold War. Uh, and so we're seeing a tremendous uh, drive to beat up the hearts and minds of people in Latin America and Africa, as, as opposed to letting China beat up the hearts and minds of these people and to take their resources. So. Um in the old days, it was a literal group of a small number of men who ran these companies and ran the government. And they did it for their own benefit and lied about how it was for the benefit of democracy. These days, since the corruption that affects those developing countries starts in America, and the corporations have bought off the government officials through campaign contributions, is the heart of corruption actually right here in America? There's corruption, <laughs> there's corruption all the way along the line, but yeah, we 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 generate it, and you know people will say, well, the government of, of such and such a country is terribly corrupt, but you got to ask yourself, who's corrupting them? You know, corruption doesn't just grow on trees. Uh, some somebody's doing the corrupting, and it's very interesting that you know sometimes when you go to places like I, I was recently in in a, in a country where you know I, I to get through the security <laughs> to get on my airplane. And I had to basically uh, let the security guard take a flashlight that he 
that he wanted and was obvious. Or sometimes we have to give money to people like that to, to get a piece of paper signed. Um, and we see that as this deep, deep corruption. In the United States, we don't generally have to do that. We don't have to do that. But we have corruption on this extremely high level and it's legal. So I suppose, it, quite strictly speaking, it isn't corruption. But when you are able uh, to, when a corporate executive, a CEO of a big corporation, basically has a lot more votes than you or I have, not personally, but through campaign financing, he gets to win over. Uh, recent studies show that the average senator uh, can be bought for less than $50,000. And many companies may, may may buy that senator for that amount, but he, he, he's going to defend all of them. A House of Representative uh, person is even less. Uh, but you and I aren't likely to do that. And so these these senators and, and House of Representative people will really represent these, these big corporations. And the other thing is that the corporations will promise them, well, you know, if you don't win the election or when you decide to drop out of politics, uh, we'll give you a really good job as a, as a lobbyist or a consultant with our corporation. We'll pay you a lot of money every year, but just defend us while you're in that position. All right, John, there's so much to talk about. We'll have to have you back because we're way out of time. Uh, but everybody check out uh, the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman as well as all of John's books. Thank you so much for joining us on the Arctic. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Keep up your great work. <laughs> I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys, uh, post games next. Uh, I'm going to read uh, some powerful stories of why you guys in the audience want change and why some of you showed up in Iowa. I hope you guys are going to see us in Miami as well, tyt.com slash rally to join us in just a couple of days. It's Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And also tyt.com slash trial to get the post game where we're going to talk about some of these touching stories. All right, we'll be right back.